Wardcast episode 169 go Hey everyone, it's Dylan. Uh, I wanted to finish out 2018 by asking a bunch of our Wardcast friends from this past year about what games they enjoyed the most. I wanted to thank everyone that came on the show this year. We had some awesome guests, and it really meant a lot to me. Extra thanks to everyone that took the time to record something for this episode. And special thanks to those that wanted to record something, but didn't have the time because of the craziness that is this holiday season. And I especially want to thank you, listener, for listening to the show and making it so worthwhile to make. Um, We have a lot of awesome stuff coming up with MAGFest and Awesome Games Done Quick and PAX South. And here's to an exciting 2019. Hi, I'm Ruthie Edwards. I am a game developer and an experienced designer. My game of the year is Factorio. Factorio is a strategy simulation game. It's kind of got some city-building vibes to it, but also survival mechanics. Um, and this game's really interesting to me because it's been—it's technically been in early access for the last six years. Um, and it's cool to see the devs like continually work on working on it, and the community making suggestions, and the and the developers will implement those changes. So it's got—they're—they're they're really responsive to their community, which is really cool. I, uh, (laughs) the reason I picked this game is because I just spent way too many hours playing it. Um, It is like crack where you launch the game and then you wake up a week later and you wonder where your time went. It is so satisfying to build, basically you're building a factory. Um, So you crash land on this planet and you need to collect resources, build automations and work your way up the technology tree in order to launch a rocket. Um, So you're starting out by, like, hammering or by hand and forging steel bars and things like that, but then at the late stages of the game, you're automating every single thing. You're building logistics robots to build more logistics robots to build more logistics robots who are building, you know, these sort of mini cities of factories um, for you. The whole thing is run on conveyor belts, so you can see all of your resources and things moving around on the screen, which is really cool. I will say it's a very ugly game. It's mostly brown, um, and it's not exactly colorblind friendly either, but it's not really about how it looks. It's about all the cool mechanics that build up this game. Um, So I would say if you like city skylines or um, anything that's like really meticulous simulations you'll like this game and it's got trains too so if if you're a train person it's got good trains anyway thanks and have a great new year hey guys this is joe from instant replay live a youtube channel that did some let's plays and some D and stuff and now i'm here to blab to you about a really weird game that I loved very much. 
This game was pushed in my face for over a year, saying, oh my gosh, this game is so good, you have to play this game. And now, I'm here to push it in your face and say, this game is so good, oh my gosh, you should play this game. And uh, that game is Nier Automata. It is a really weird RPG action-adventure with bullet-hell elements, and the thing that really, really sells it, first and foremost, is that Nier Automata is a unique piece of art and storytelling. And secondly, it also happens to be an amazing game. An important part of what makes it so potent as an expression of art that this could only be told as a game. This story is meant to be in a game. And it does that by making the player an element in the engine of philosophy that it's telling. And it's really hard, it's going to be really hard to talk about this because so much of what makes it unique is secrets, it's spoilers, it's things that you have to play to see unfold, the way the game changes, the way the perspective changes. So maybe I'll step back a little bit and just talk about what the game is at a basic level. To begin with, this setting, this world, it technically comes from a previous franchise. It comes from Nier, which technically comes from a previous franchise. It comes from Drakengard. So there's a couple games in this series, and weirdly enough, they all come from specific endings out of multiple endings, none of which are certainly the canonical ending. There's Drakengard games that are based on one ending that aren't, and then there's, there's Nier, which is based on a, another ending. Anyways, it comes to this game. And you don't have to know the other games. But coming from near, this is a post-apocalyptic world where Earth is primarily inhabited by robots created by aliens and androids created by humans. And they're trying to fight for their maker race, basically. But along the way, they're also trying to figure out what it is to be a thing, what it is to be a person, what it is to maybe even try to be human. And that comes in very soon, where you realize these things have complex desires and goals, and you're a killing machine. And as far as being a killing machine goes, when it comes to gameplay, you've got hack and slashing and stabbing and punching, and it's all mixed in with this element of bullet hell, dodging and shooting. Sometimes you'll even be in a mech suit flying through the air like a traditional top-down shooter, and sometimes you'll just be on the ground, and even while you're hacking and slashing lots of robots, you'll be dodging uh, swarms of bullets, or trying to break them, or shooting back with all your uh, ranged weapons as well. What's more than that, it also does these wonderful things where you'll be running through a dungeon in your typical 3D action-adventure camera, and then you'll run into a corridor, and the game will flip the camera, and you'll suddenly be in a side-scroller. The controls won't have changed at all, it'll feel completely natural, but now you have this, this sudden change in the way the game feels and it's really, really cool. And it, it'll do the same thing in top-down mode, where you're suddenly now a top-down action game. It'll just put the camera at a really weird fixed angle, and it never interrupts the gameplay in a way that it was really jarring to change rooms in, like, Resident Evil. Instead, every time the camera changes, you're like, oh, cool, like, I know exactly what I need to do, and it's really easy to adapt to the controls. The characters that you're playing are androids in this war against robots and humans, and they are, oh, man, they are, uh... This is the hard part now where I've got to think, okay, what can I tell you, and what can I not tell you? I can at least say this. If you've seen the cover art of this game, you know that they are very interestingly dressed. Uh, the main character is something out of like a, a, a weeb otaku, like almost a maid outfit, but much more 
slim-lined and like femme fatale, and it seems kind of ridiculous. And it is kind of ridiculous, but the characters change and grow so much over the course of the story. The reveals change your perspective as you learn more secrets of the story and the setting. Everything gets recontextualized, and these characters are responding. And I should have silenced my phone, but I'm in too deep now, so I'm just going <laughs> to silence it now. Everything about the story, the, what I love about it, it also comes back to the fact that this game has this wonderful like philosophical lean to it. And it's not just something that is like a sidebar or it's just like a happenstance on the game. Philosophy is heavily on this creative team's mind. There are a significant number of characters that are just straight up named after philosophers. Sartre, Pascal, Kierkegaard. They they either mirror or contrast or compare. They They might follow along or kind of completely be a reverse of their philosophical components. And oh man, it explores so much. There, and it's really unbiased, too. You get a lot of this kind of nihilistic expression and optimistic expression in, in a search for existentialism. It's, it's a good bit of identity and a good bit of meaning searching. And it has very unique points that it reaches that really do make you think. And you just kind of have to keep pushing forward as this game builds and builds toward an ending. And along the way uh, to, this, to this build, you have this fantastic musical score it's weird and it's epic and it's emotionally driven it, it it explores lots of different sounds while sounding very consistent to the world and the themes that are present it also does some really cool shifting in combat when you're moving from hack and slash to some of the other forms of gameplay it'll shift from a kind of traditional score into an 8-bit version of what you were just hearing and it's so seamless and it sounds really really rad i'm really rambling now and i'm trying to i just want to try to say as much as i can about this game but i gotta really try to draw to a conclusion which is what this game is really all about it's about building to this wonderful thing that it does at the end as these characters change as you get closer and closer to the ending and you'll think you're at the ending multiple times and you've really just got to keep going and going and going and when you reach the true ending you'll know you're there and it's not some obscure secret that that you have to try to do all these collectibles or things like that there are certainly obscure secrets that you can uncover but the true ending is just a thing that you have to be a little willing to go further when you think you're done if there was one reason I could point to why this game is is so rad is the way it addresses the player at the end. The way it involves the player in the character story and in the philosophical meandering that the game is doing. And it gives you a choice that is so unique. It's a call to action that is so cool and distinct. And I, I wish I could tell you what it was, but I highly encourage you to see for yourself. Thanks. This has been me rambling on Near Automata. Twenty eighteen gave us a number of wonderful experiences. I was pleasantly surprised by God of War and Spider-Man, both of which delivered powerful emotional moments, and both of which hold a special place in my heart. But the game I want to talk about is Lucas Pope's The Return of the Oprah Din. I've loved logic puzzles since I was in grade school, and The Return of the Oprah Din delivers a series of tangled interactions that players are left to unravel. At the start of the game, Players are told they need to figure out what happened on the ship, which appeared back in port without a single living soul aboard. Every member of the 60-person crew has a fate, and it's up to players to use visual clues, snippets of dialogue, and cleverly crafted context to work it all out. 
While The Return of the Oberdin is effectively a single-player game, we played it as a group. Four of us passed the controller around, argued about crew member identities and causes of death, gasped as we realized just how twisted the tale was becoming, and celebrated as we locked in each set of correct answers. Oberdin wasn't the traditional video game that we played throughout the year. It was a collaborative experience. It was, in many ways, a story that we helped unravel together. We were wrong together, and more importantly, we were right together. And I won't lie and say that it was all smooth sailing. There were a number of disagreements along the way. And that's part of what made The Return of the Oberdin so wonderful. It pairs some of the most interesting storytelling I've experienced with a smart presentation. It's a triumph of puzzle design, but it shines most in its narrative crafting. The entire game is experienced out of sequence, and the story is told through a series of three-dimensional tableaus, the bare minimum of dialogue, and a few artistic renderings of life at sea that are all vital pieces of determining the fate of each crew member. The visuals, modeled after 1980s computer graphics, complete with a variety of filters including the sickly green of the Apple IIe, prevent the grisly murders from being too explicit, although some are in fact fairly gory even given the aesthetic style. The voice acting is minimalist, but each spoken line is ripe for examination and re-examination. One of the most intriguing parts of Oberdin is how it made us absolutely certain of something one moment, and then obliterated that assertion the next. Especially in the more chaotic scenes, determining whether someone was murdered intentionally or accidentally snuffed out is complicated. Following a soon-to-be-expired crewman back through a series of memories, only to realize that the cause of death we were absolutely sure had taken the man's life was a mere red herring, was both maddening and exhilarating. In a year that brought enormous AAA releases, indies continued to stand out with unique and innovative experiences. The Return of the Oberdin is an example of how design doesn't need to melt graphic cards or span sprawling open worlds to draw players in and hold them tight. With all the aha moments that left us feeling like geniuses, and the ones we couldn't believe took us so long to figure out, I can't wait to see what Lucas Pope comes up with next. So, video games? No, fuck. Well, this is good enough. Video games are awesome, and I love them. Um, even though as I get older, I feel like I spend more of my time reading about video games and looking at video games than playing them. This year, I still managed to get some games in. Uh, first, I'll start with a few honorable mentions before I get to the game of the year. Uh, Monster Hunter World and Hitman 2 were both games that stuck out this year to me. Uh, both games played some weird lizard brain function in my head where I had this desire to plan, then execute. It's an itch satisfied by games like XCOM and Dishonored that provide kind of wide-ranging tool sets for you to learn, uh, fail with, and then eventually uh, master. You never really get to the point of mastery, but, you know. What makes Monster Hunter so appealing is its ability to breathe life and unpredictability into these huge creatures while being a systems-oriented game. Um, the weapon system is very strict. The movement is very defined, and you're kind of learning within these rule sets, but then you have these monsters that create these unpredictable moments because of their... Uh, their behaviors and AI that are driven to kind of create these sense of, of real living things rather than um, kind of pre-programmed AI. Even after hundreds of hours in, I would still find myself wanting to learn a new weapon or shock when a giant mud monster would body slam a fish beast, uh, providing the final blow so that I did not need to. Hitman's kind of the opposite of this game, where it's, it's a game so strict in systems that it encourages you to create chaos. Uh, and then because it's so clockwork oriented, you can kind of 
preempt what your chaos will cause. It allows you to have these pretty cinematic or almost superhero-esque moments of, of planning, chaos creation, and execution. Uh, they're so well communicated to the player that you can drop a chandelier on a target, and because you know the system so well, you can pretty much be a participant in the, clou- in the crowd uh, and watch the, the, un- the, the terror unfold. Um, I'm not sure what that scheme says about me personally, but Hitman, uh, and Hitman 2, I should say, is just a distillation of, of, of really awesome level design and, and really well-communicated systems that make the, the experience of playing it uh, enjoyable but also manageable. Uh, but my game of the year is God of War. God of War is, is is something else. Part of the reason why I love this medium so much is that every year I seem to find games that redefine what games can be to me. Uh, some years it's titles like Hotline Miami that create experiences I didn't know I wanted, which is a little unsettling. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, the first Red Dead Redemption forever uh, changed what I thought a game thinks of the player uh, with narrative and how that game ended. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts opened my eyes to like, what creative tool sets within well-defined structures do for player agency. Um, but God of War is, is, is an experience that, that feels directed in a way that I, I haven't seen games do in the past uh, in a way that I didn't know games could be. And, and it's a way that I think games should be. It's expensive and it's it's overwhelming and I'm sure that it's, it's something that we, we only get so many of those every so often, but it's just this fantastic weave of, of things I'm a huge sucker for. It's a coming-of-age story, it's a father-son story, it's Greek and Norse mythology, which all things are, are things that I find very rad. Um, and and it, it's combined with a, a, a ever-evolving combat system that feels heavy and violent um, in a way that interplays with the story really well. There are these fights that happen where you're just, it's, it's visceral and it's, and it's, so, it's so close and in your face and you, you would leave a fight, and I would audibly say things like, holy shit, and <laughs> like clockwork, so would Artreus. Um, but it's the sensation that the creators had a grasp of the, the thing that they created, uh, God of War, so well that they could preempt my reaction and make sure the world reacted um, in a way that I felt was really natural. And it's the way that this game knew so clearly what it was trying to do in every scene and every moment that it... it, it, it the, the narrative and the story meets you. It, it's just this weird connection between, it just feels so curated and so directed. And for that reason, there's not a moment in God of War that I didn't constantly think this is exactly what they wanted this thing to be. Um, and it's a thing that they wanted to communicate to their audience. And it's, it's something special and it's, it's something that I've, I've never played before. And it's, it's, it's an, it's an action game, but it just, it just feels so much bigger and broader and for that reason, I think it's the coolest game I've played this year, the best game I've played this year, and one that I, I look forward to seeing anything that comes from that studio because those are just some incredibly talented people. So, yeah. Um, thank you. My name is Alex Berry. Uh, I am an animator, I worked on the Swords of Ditto, and I'm going to be contributing to Battletoads next year. So as far as my favorite game of 2018 goes, I actually have two games. Um, They are Celeste and Just Shapes and Beats. And I will say, like, of all the games that I will have spent the most time with from 2018, I will probably spend the most hours in Red Dead Redemption 2 and Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Red Dead, obviously, because it's enormous and... um, Smash Brothers because, you know, I'll probably be playing that throughout the years. But 
in contrast, um, Celeste and Just Shapes and Beats were two games that I didn't actually spend a whole lot of time with because they're relatively short campaigns, but uh, they really stood out. And I think that's kind of important in, a, in an age where um, people are just, they're trying to put as much in a game as possible to kind of keep it um, endlessly replayable. And that's not always a negative. Like I know Red Dead has gotten some flack for being too big and too slow and, you know, perhaps too bloated, not necessarily um, gameplay first. And I totally get that. Uh, I actually really enjoy the game for a myriad of reasons, but like in general, I, I think what, what matters a lot in a game standing out is if you can make an impression in a short amount of time. And Celeste, I know I don't remember exactly how much time I spent playing the campaign, but I have to imagine it was under 10 hours. So with those two games, like uh, to go into the first one, uh, Celeste, you know, originally when I was playing it, I was thinking, man, I hope this game gets exposure. I really hope it does well. And as it turns out, it's done very well. Um, I don't know exactly sales figures, but like it certainly has had an impact on people. And I think the number one reason it had that impact is because its its story is um, powerful for a lot of people. It's it's a narrative dealing with um, emotional and mental illness, and that really <laughs> that really resonates. For me, what the reason that story resonated so much was because I didn't expect it. I didn't think that's where the game was going. I didn't think that was a part of the game. I, I knew I knew vaguely what Celeste was from its uh, original version, um, but this much expanded version, when, when the story really kicked in, uh, it kind of <laughs> punched me in the gut a little bit. I think they, they did a really good balance of, of mixing the kind of Twitch reaction platforming um, people like in these retro throwbacks, especially, you know, people around my age who, who grew up with uh, NES games and SNES games, but knew, knew when to pipe in with the story when it did. It did it at appropriate times. Uh, it never felt overbearing. It always felt like it actually drove the gameplay forward, which I really have to imagine is quite difficult to do successfully. Ultimately, like in, in the moment by moment, basis I, I enjoyed it because it was super challenging platforming not super meat boy <laughs> difficulty which is um, a little too difficult for me um, but it was hard and I genuinely appreciated the fact that they had people's abilities in mind when they allowed you to have very easy access to uh, difficulty changes like you could uh, you know have the ability to not fall in a pit or whatever um, they, they they clearly wanted people of many different abilities to be able to experience the narrative, and that's not something you get all the time. I think we're getting better about that, but um, it's they did it really well. It didn't seem overbearing. It seemed like it was done really elegantly. So Celeste, definitely in that category. Um, Just Shapes and Beats was a game that I had seen over and over again at shows. I don't remember how many years they were showing it at PAXs, but it, it seemed like a few. And each time I saw it, it looked super cool. Um, if you don't know, the whole premise is you're basically uh, a shape, like a square or a triangle, depending on who you are, uh, and you're, you're dodging hazards just thrown at you on a, bla a black background. It looked really hard, and I would see these people playing it at PAX and go, oh man, I don't want to play this in front of people because I'm going to look like an idiot. Um, so I waited for it to come out, and uh, it was very good. It was very, it was very hard. And there were a few uh, moments playing the story where uh, you know 
you come very close to throwing the controller at the screen. Um, but it really, really clicked. And what I liked about it was it was so easy to understand what you have to do. Like you're essentially a shape that's just dodging stuff and you have one action. You can move around, but you can also dodge through these um, shapes that are thrown at you. And it's it was shown so well. Like you have a black background, you have blue characters, and you have pink hazards. And you know something's going to be a hazard as soon as you see that it's pink. But what I didn't know going into it was that, again, kind of like Celeste, like I didn't know there was any story to just shapes and beats. And as it turns out, it actually had a really, really charming story, like essentially telling the very basic story of you, this shape in your world of shapes, trying to take back control from this like just bad pink force that is spreading throughout the, the world you're in. And, you know, you're on this little overworld map going between levels uh, and you see your shape go through the world and interact with other little characters. And the entire story is told through pantomime. Like, Celeste is very wordy, and I don't say that as a negative, it's just what it is. Like, uh, whereas Just Shapes and Beats, it was telling its entire story just through pantomime. And not just pantomime, but like pantomime of like really basic shapes. They're not they're not humanoid characters. They're, um, you're a square and like the bad guy, um, is a circle with a face in it. Like it's, it's, it's very simplistic and, and, and crazy streamlined to, to, to tell the story. And it does it really well. It's really charming. And not only that, like the story actually goes into the actual levels you're playing. So like the first boss you fight is, um, the recurring boss you see throughout the game. And, uh, it's basically just a face uh, with arms attacking you. And I, and I didn't expect to see that level of like uh, story in the game and uh, mixed with the, the soundtrack, which I mean, to be honest, like electronic music, not necessarily something I listen to generally. I don't dislike it, but mixing that with the soundtrack, it works so well. And the music was so good. Uh, like there was this amazing connection between the music and the gameplay and the visuals you were seeing but that it had a really cute story on top of it. It really impressed me. I should say, like again, talking about music, Celeste. It, Celeste, when I think about the Celeste soundtrack, which is it's a soundtrack I listen to, God, probably once a week at least. Um, if I think about that soundtrack, I get emotional. It's it's so tied to the story and to the gameplay too. There's a moment towards the end where you're scaling the mountain and you're doing it. Um, you're doing it. You kind of refound your purpose and climbing the mountain again, and and the and the score works so well with where you are on the mountain. It's genuinely moving, and I kind of <laughs> get teary eyed thinking about it. Um, so yeah, like sorry that's rambling, um, but these are these are basically the two games that really hit me the hardest, and I think I think they're they're aided by their brevity. Both games are are chock full of stuff to do. Like Celeste has all these optional missions in them. Um, Just Shapes and Beats does as well, and it kind of emphasizes, you know, you know, replaying, um, doing better than you did last time. And you can. There's also multiplayer in it too. But you know, as much as I love, I really do love games you get lost in. I do like. I really like enjoy playing Red Dead Redemption 2. I really loved Breath of the Wild when it came out, and that's a game I spent freaking 100-plus hours in. But the moments of playing Celeste and Just Shapes and Beats 
are so powerful in, in that I didn't, I didn't spend dozens of hours, you know, like they, they really shined in the time that I spent with them. And when I played both, um, I thought these are, these are two games that I will probably play annually. Like I don't have many games that I go back and play often. Um, and usually they're, they're old games. I, I have a tradition of playing Little Nemo from the NES, like, um, you know, every couple of years. But I, I played both these games and I thought I will definitely play these stories over again because they were either really engrossing or really moving or, or affected me in a way that I, I just don't generally get from bigger games. Um, so yeah, those are those are my choices. Hey, my name is Harris Foster. I'm the community manager for Finji. Uh, Dylan asked me to tell you about one of my favorite games of this year, and I want to talk about uh, one that might be kind of surprising uh, to you, which is The Quiet Man. Um, I played The Quiet Man uh, on the Finji Extra Life uh, stream, um, and someone donated uh, $50 for me to play it, and it was on sale at the time, so I picked it up, and not knowing what to expect at all, I... I heard that the game had some weird stuff going on, but I never really looked into it beyond that. And what I experienced was something that I'll never forget. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I want to avoid talking too much about this game because I want you to have the same experience I did if you decide to play it. But if you go in, just know some things. It's not a good game. It's not a bad game that makes you think. It's a bad game that makes you ask why. So many things in that game have me questioning why they decided to do it that way. Who are the people behind it? What is the mindset? Who was influencing the game? There was so much just weird head scratching uh, going on after playing that game that all I want to do is know more. Um, And it leaves you with a cliffhanger um, that that is both frustrating and entirely um, compelling to play the game again. Um, but yeah, uh, if you follow me on Twitter at Harris Foster, you might've seen some clips that we threw up, uh, of us playing the game and doing voiceovers for the characters because there is no audio in the game as the main character is deaf, uh, which doesn't really make sense and makes even less sense when you get to playing the game, but that's just part of the charm. Um, but yeah, if you do decide to play this game, get a group of friends together, get a box of Franzia. Choose a character that each one of your friends will play during cutscenes and try to act out the story yourself as you watch the screen. It's a delight. It's something that you have to do. Um, and I hope you get a chance to play The Quiet Man. Uh, Game of the Year lists are always looked at as these things that are about the best of the best. But for me, the best games of a year are the ones that I have the best memories of and have the most fun with. And The Quiet Man is certainly one of those. So, uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite games of 2018. Uh, thanks for Dylan for inviting me to do this. And, uh, here's a 2019. Hey, this is Craig Barnes. I'm a composer and sound designer, and I did the train jam with Dylan earlier this year. My favorite game of the year has got to be dead cells. I played the crap out of this game. 
The controls feel fantastic. Running, dodging, slashing, everything you do in the game feels effortless and powerful. And it's super addicting to unlock all the different weapons and items. Um, the game is pretty difficult, but I don't think it's unfair. Except maybe some people are pissed off about the final boss. It tends to be pretty hard. And there are a few times where I tried him and put the controller down. And I was like, I can never beat this. I'll never get there. I'm never doing this again. But there's that little nagging in my brain, which I guess is the addictiveness of the game. That was like, no, I have to figure out how to do this. I can do this. I believe in myself. So, yeah, I uh, very addictive game. Super fun and highly recommended. So game of the year would be, for me, either Spider-Man or Tetris Effect, because I didn't know that I wanted to play a rhythm-based Tetris game until I played Tetris Effect, and I smashed through the whole thing in like two hours, uh, and it was a great experience. So that's sort of a late-to-the-party game uh, for the year, but it's in the running for me. I think that, and definitely just Spider-Man being phenomenal. Um, Yeah, the soundtrack to that has been uh, on my work playlist for a very very long time and uh it's it's always one of the first things i listen to in the morning (laughs) 